Winterhawk Podcasting presents Lower 48. Episode 9, Room 3. Hey, Cammy. What's up, Cammy? Hey, so uh, we wanted to give you an update. Sorry, I hope that you can hear us. We're kind of in a hurry, so... Yeah, we're just leaving Clifton, Tennessee. And uh, we just wanted to tell you about what happened. So, uh, <laughs> it all started when Austin <laughs> decided to go get a haircut. He's been uh, whining about it for how long? Uh, well, a few months, because we haven't done it anywhere, and my hair was out of control. It was well past my shoulders. I think it looked fine. <laughs> I needed a trim. So when we pulled into Clifton, there's a salon right on the main street. So we just stopped. We just stopped there really quick. And Zach's complaining about it, but it was very fortuitous that we stopped there because, well, he sat down and read through his little I Spy book that they had for kids. Hey, listen, I mean, it, it was an interesting version. <laughs> I'd never seen it before. I had a lovely conversation with Stacy, who cut my hair, and uh, she kept, you know, she's asking about who we were and what we were doing there, and uh, I kind of gave her the lowdown of everything, told her, you know, pitched her the podcast, and she kind of shrugged it off, unfortunately. Yeah, understand. <laughs> we didn't win over another listener, but that's okay. Um, but she did tell us that um, during the time that Tibbs would have been there, because he mentioned he stayed overnight here in his journal, and during that time, uh, the only place to stay overnight was a little place called Heron House Inn. Um, it's a little bit right off of the main street. It's right next to the river. Yeah, so basically, like, it's an old inn that was made in, like, the 1850s. This yeah. guy named Richard, he he made it. Now, here's the interesting thing. Yeah. So when we went to visit it, it, it's still standing, though I think that they're, they were talking about remodeling it, something. Mm -hmm. So we went at the best time, is what I'm right, saying. Right, right. Because we met a woman there named uh, Sally Dufort. Yeah, she's the innkeeper. Her right. and her husband are the innkeepers there. Yeah, and, and we, we talked with her, and she actually remembered Tibbs. Yeah, which was awesome. Like, this is the first time, I guess, other than that weird bookshop owner who didn't talk to us, this is the first time we've met somebody in one of these towns that Tibbs talks about that remembers him being there. Right, and when we asked her about it, she immediately closed down the front desk, <laughs> took us over to a couple of chairs that were in front of the fireplace, and told us this story. I remember the night he came in like it was yesterday. There was a storm raging outside, and the lights kept dimming, threatening to go out. I sat behind the desk in my small office reading a romance novel, something my mother would have referred to as smut, and relaxing to the sound of rain hitting the building. I loved rainy nights, and this was shaping up to be the beginning of a perfect one. My reverie was interrupted by a banging at the front door. I jumped up, and my mind struggled to orient itself back to where I actually was. I quickly got up and walked to the door. When I opened it, I was greeted by the sight of a man clutching his long overcoat closed with one hand, water dripping from his wide-brimmed hat, holding a large leather traveling bag at his side. 
I gestured him in, and he stepped inside, removing his hat to reveal a shock of red hair underneath. In the light of the front hall, I could see that he had an unkempt beard, as if he hadn't shaved in a couple of weeks. He politely introduced himself as Caleb Tibbs, and asked if we had any rooms available. I told him he would have the run of the place, as we didn't have any current guests. I thought I caught a glimmer of satisfaction in his eye at this information, but it was gone so quickly I couldn't be sure. He hung up his hat and coat on the coat rack by the door, and followed me back into my office. I handed him a sheet that went over the different rooms and amenities, and told him to pick whichever one suited him. He took a seat in the guest chair and looked over the page for a long moment. Finally, he looked up and requested room three. I was slightly startled by this. That's our smallest room and by far the least comfortable. Trying to be kind, I offered him our best room for the price of room three, and was surprised when he smiled and politely, if a little pompously, declined my offer. Room three would be fine, he insisted. I shrugged and once he had paid, handed over the key. I told him there would be a meal prepared sometime in the next hour, and I would knock on his door to let him know when it was ready. He thanked me and headed upstairs with his things. After he was gone, I hurried back to the kitchen and found our elderly cook Camilla sleeping at a small table in the corner. Camilla had worked at the inn her whole life, taking over from her mother who had been on staff here to the original owner. She knew more about the history of this place than anyone, and when she passed away a few years later, I sorely regretted not having recordings made of everything she could remember so we could compile a complete history of the building. I woke her up and told her we had a walk-in guest. She sighed and shuffled to the counter to start prepping. I helped her as best I could and we whipped together some beef stew and cornbread. As the cornbread baked, I went upstairs to let Mr. Tibbs know when the meal would be ready. As I walked down the long hall toward room three, I suddenly saw a flash of light coming from under the door. I thought at first it was lightning, but realized that there was no accompanying thunder to go with it. A couple more flashes happened in quick succession, and I realized that the light wasn't coming from under any of the other doors. This was something happening in room three alone. I knocked on the door and heard quick footsteps coming toward me from inside. The door cracked open, and Mr. Tibbs quickly filled the gap, blocking my view inside the room. I told him when he could join us for dinner, and as he shut the door I caught a quick glimpse past him to a row of Polaroids on the bed next to a camera. As I walked back downstairs I wondered what he could be taking pictures of in that room. As I said before, there was nothing special about the room itself. I busied myself setting the table in the dining room and let the question slip from my mind. A while later Camilla brought the food out and Mr. Tibbs came downstairs. He had changed into a thick sweater that he wore with slacks and a comfortable pair of loafers. We sat at the table, and after Camilla had said a quick blessing on the food, we dug in. I asked Mr. Tibbs if he was here in Clifton for business or pleasure, and he replied that it was business. But when I asked him what he did for work, he brushed the question aside with a non-committal answer. My probing questions didn't get us anywhere, and eventually the light conversation stalled. Grasping for something to break the silence, I introduced him to Camilla. When he learned about Camilla's history with the inn, I saw his eyes light up, and for the first time he looked interested. He asked her about growing up here, and what it was like to see so much direct change happen all around her. If she ever felt stagnant watching everything grow so much while she stayed here, dedicating her life to a home she could never own. I was slightly shocked by the directness of some of his questions, but every attempt I made to steer the conversation into safer and more polite waters was ignored. To her credit, Camilla didn't break a sweat. 
She answered all of his questions with a clarity and depth that almost surprised me. I'd never seen her be so open with anyone, especially a stranger. Now to be fair, I would never have the audacity to ask some of the things that Mr. Tibbs was, so maybe that was on me. But I loved this old woman, and never wanted her to feel uncomfortable. I tried to break into the questioning by asking Mr. Tibbs if room 3 was going to work for him, and that there was still time to switch to a different room if he wanted. He replied curtly that it was just fine, and quickly turned back to Camilla. I followed his gaze, and saw to my surprise that Camilla had gone very pale, a glint of fear in her eyes. I quickly asked if she was okay, but she waved my concern away, and asked me, with a slight air of hostility, why I would put this man in room 3 today of all days. Taken aback, I admit I turned slightly defensive, explaining that Mr. Tibbs had requested that room, and had turned down my attempts to give him a better one. In any case, what was wrong with room 3? It might not be as grand as some of our other ones, but it's still a perfectly fine room. At this, Camilla went quiet and stared down at the table. I looked over at Mr. Tibbs, expecting to see my confusion mirrored on his face. Instead, I saw something else. A restrained, expectant interest, bordering on hunger. It looked almost like he desperately wanted to urge Camilla to keep talking, and was barely holding himself back. The silence grew strained. I was filled with a sudden sense of foreboding. Never had I felt unsafe in this beautiful house that I worked and lived in. But now I was starting to feel something, almost like an energy was seeping through the broken shutters and out of the cracks in the paint, making me hyper-aware of all the little flaws in the structure that were hidden by its beauty. Finally, Camilla spoke. First, she apologized to me, and explained that since I hadn't yet been there a year, I wouldn't have known. Room 3 always stays empty on the 27th of this month. Always. Mr. Tibbs beat me to my next question. Why? Camilla first looked at Mr. Tibbs, and then to me apologetically. This was something that she had intended to talk to me about, but with the recent slump in guests, it hadn't seemed important. She explained that when Richard Heron had first built this house in the 1850s, it had been the ultimate symbol of his status in the community. He had built the first local general store, and had become the richest man in town. He moved his wife and nine children into the house, and, by all accounts, lived a happy life, surrounded by his large family. As his children started to grow up and leave home, he and his wife Helen found themselves alone in a large, empty house. Once the ultimate status symbol, now just a reminder of happier times. They decided to open the house as a boarding location for students of the newly built college of which he was a patron. This was immensely satisfying for them. They now had a home bustling with life, filled with these young people eager to learn and discover themselves. People that they could help care for and guide on their path to adulthood. This was a happy time for the Herons, one that helped them keep their purpose in life. Several more happy years passed, until one day tragedy struck. The Herons' middle son Harry came home to visit. On the 27th, all the family that was in town went down for a day at the river. And while he played with some of the young nieces and nephews, he fell and struck his head. It wasn't a bad wound, and he quickly jumped up, laughing and claiming that it was nothing compared to his injuries during the war. He stayed at his parents' home that night, and since all the old rooms were filled up with boarders, they set him up in the smallest room in the back. 
They stayed up late with some of the students, laughing and telling stories, having what could almost be described as a perfect night. Everyone went to bed and slept peacefully. At some point during the night, Harry died. When he didn't come into breakfast, his mother went back to the room and found him still in his bed. He lay there lifeless, a peaceful expression on his face. It was a horrible shock to everyone. Richard grew almost catatonic on the days leading up to the funeral, but after laying their son to rest, he and Helen were able to grieve and then continue on with their lives. But there was just a tinge of sadness about them now that cut into everything they did. It was several years before Helen would let anyone stay in the small bedroom where Harry had died. Finally, they decided to open it up for a student, but Helen insisted that they get rid of the old bed before anyone could stay there. A young student moved in and spent the year there going to school. Nothing out of the ordinary happened. He seemed happy and healthy all year. Then the anniversary of Harry's death approached. The night of the 27th was a somber one in the house. A storm kicked up outside, and everyone went to bed earlier than usual. The storm raged all night, but in the morning the clouds were gone, and beautiful morning light streamed in through all the windows. Camilla's mother was the cook and housekeeper and went around waking all the boarders up. When they all came down for breakfast, she realized that one of them was missing. She went back up to the smallest room and knocked, calling out for the young man to come out for breakfast. There was no sound in the room. She slowly opened the door, and to her shock found the body of the young man still tucked under his covers. He looked so peaceful that she thought he could still be sleeping, but when she touched his hand, he was ice cold. There was never a satisfactory explanation about why he had died, and this broke Richard and Helen. They closed the house for boarders and built a small one-bedroom guest home at the back of the property for them to live in. The only one allowed in the big house now was Camilla's mother, who was paid to keep it up and prepare meals in the back kitchen for the now old couple. This continued until Richard and Helen died. Their estate sold the house to a young businessman who turned it into the first iteration of the inn. He kept Camilla's mother on and spent hundreds of thousands renovating the house. He had lived in Clifton as a child, but grew up mostly in Memphis, coming back to this area now only to capitalize on a slight boom in tourism in the early 1900s. After the renovations were complete, he started advertising the grand opening of the new inn. This kicked up a flurry of rumors with the locals about the two mysterious deaths that had occurred there, some saying that it was haunted. That fear leached into the neighborhood children, who would now sometimes come by to dare each other to touch the front door. Camilla's mother sometimes chased teenagers away who would try to break in and stay overnight. This caused the grand opening to be slightly underwhelming, but since the people actually staying there were always from out of town, it didn't really do much to hurt the business. Things went well for several months, until the anniversary on the 27th came around. Just like before, a storm kicked up outside. And in the morning, the guest staying in what was now labeled Room 3 was found dead, having died peacefully in their sleep during the night. This caused quite a scandal. The uproar in the local community forced the new owner to shut down the inn for a few months, and he was only able to open it back up with an assurance that Room 3 would no longer be available. He kept this promise for a full year, but wanted the inn running at full capacity as soon as possible. He quietly opened room three back up for guests, hoping that everything had blown over. This didn't stay secret for long. 
When it leaked out, the owner tried to assuage the community by doing a stunt. The week of the 27th, he would spend every night in the room to prove that there was nothing wrong. That week, it became something of a local media sensation. Every morning, people were coming by to see if he had survived his nights in the haunted room. The longer it went on, the more silly it seemed. Nothing was happening, and people began to get bored. Finally, it was the night of the 27th. That night, the storm whipped up and showered the house with rain. Camilla remembered her mother getting more agitated during the night as the storm grew, not really understanding why it was affecting her so much. The next morning, the owner was found dead, having died during the night in his sleep. Camilla remembered the sheet-covered body being carried by several of the local men out of the main door, a single pale hand spilling off the side of the makeshift stretcher and poking out below the sheet. After that, nothing happened for a long time. The house again fell empty, while Camilla's mother and then eventually Camilla cared for it. After some time, it was bought by someone else who reopened it as an inn. This time, room three was left open, except for on the anniversary of the deaths. Every year, no matter how busy they were, that room was to stay empty overnight. Camilla fell into silence after telling us this. I stared at the table, thinking about what had just been said. I had been brought in as an innkeeper not too long ago hired by someone who had just purchased the inn and done some quick modernization on the property. They hadn't mentioned this to me, but they were hardly ever in town, so maybe they didn't even know any of this. I looked up and saw Camilla was staring across the table at Mr. Tibbs. He looked back at her with a look of satisfaction. I got the distinct impression that her stories had just confirmed something for him. Finally, she broke the silence begging him to please stay in a different room. After a beat, he bowed his head to her and promised her that he would. Camilla visibly relaxed and got up to clear the table. I took Mr. Tibbs back to my office and got him the key to room one. He rejected my offer to help him move his belongings and headed back upstairs and out of sight. The next morning I got up and went upstairs to wake him for breakfast. There was no answer at the door to room I slipped the door open and peeked inside, but it was empty. I panicked slightly and rushed down the hall to room three. I never took the key from him, maybe he had stayed in that room despite Camilla's warnings. I realized that I was holding my breath as I opened the door, but exhaled with relief when I found that that room was empty as well. Mr. Tibbs was gone, having slipped out sometime in the early morning the only sign that he had ever been there being the two room keys left neatly on the table by the front door. That night had an effect on me, and every year when we came up to the anniversary of the deaths I think about it. Camilla passed away just a couple years after this, and even now with another new owner, I make sure that room three is empty during the anniversary of those mysterious deaths from so long ago. You know, it, it really seems like Tibbs was as mysterious in life right. as he was in death. Well, I love the imagery of he shows up at the front door of this inn in a storm dressed like the, the like, priest like the from exorcist. the exorcist, <laughs> you know, and then just comes in and I don't know. It just was like it was cool hearing somebody talk about him that actually knew him. How right, many times yeah. we... 
you know, we've talked to so many people, and and they all know about him, yeah. but to actually Nobody have like that him. interaction, yeah. and like I don't know, because the only photos I've ever seen of him are in black and white, so the fact that he had red hair kind of blows my mind a little bit. Like, how did we not know that? It, I mean, to be fair, the man like only ever got photographed like <laughs> what four times. Yeah, yeah, and it's only in like his first book. Once he got control of the publishing, there was no more photos. <laughs> He reminds me of our friend Porter, you know, uh, yeah. Por- Porter by way of Willem Dafoe, <laughs> right. you know, so that's for you, Porter. Who would have thought? Yeah. I know you're listening because you're one listener. <laughs> <laughs> one other thing, Cammie, yeah, yeah. um, this is a little bit embarrassing to admit, but uh, <laughs> Austin and I have talked about it. And first off, we want to apologize for being grumpy with you the past uh, little while. Yeah, to put it politely. Yeah. We've been grumpy with you. Um, but honestly, the fact that we kept going and we actually met somebody who knew to... We wouldn't have had that experience had you let us go on our, like, wild goose chase. Yeah, so, you kept us going with the plan that we had originally. And this has been a really cool experience to meet someone who had met him. You know, even if it was so brief a time, like, less than 12 hours, I guess, because he disappeared right. in the morning. But still, like, that's the most FaceTime with him uh, that we've ever come across. Yeah, like, from a primary from a, source. Yeah, so that's just a, that's just a really cool thing. So yeah, we so just wanted to, say, we wanted to say thank you, humbly say thank you. Thank you, and we're sorry. So <laughs> well, anyway, we'll, we'll reach out to you again when we get to Kentucky. All right, talk to you later. See you, Cammie. Lower 48 is a production of Winterhawk Podcasting. Written and presented by Zach Berry and Austin Meredith, with music by Tyra Orgill. To learn more about our other great podcasts, go to winterhawkpodcasting.com.